Parshas HaShavua of the portion of the week. And it seems a little bit odd to start with Parshas Noach, which is the second portion, and not to start with the first. But Brashas was this past Shabbos, and I wouldn't want to fall behind. Each, each Parsha is so full. If we would go back to Brashas, we'd always be one week behind. So you'd be saying over at the Shabbos table last week's portion. So we're going to have to forego, we'll have to forego missing Brashas at this particular point. We will be making up some of the concepts of Brashas in references in future portions. And uh, somewhere along the line, if the Yantav works out differently next year, we'll have Parshas Brashas. <coughs> Parshas Noach really deals about a thousand years into the creation of the world. Over one Shabbos, we skipped a thousand years. And basically what Parshas Noach deals with is with the flood. What do we know about the flood? We know that, there, that after ten generations that the world existed, God more or less, quote-unquote, got fed up. He saw that the world that he had created he saw that the world that he had created was being misused. He saw that the world was being misused and things were going from bad to worse. And because things were going from bad to worse, there came a point when God decided, that's it. That's it. And what we know about the flood is that God decided to wipe out the entire world and he saved Noah and his wife and his three children and their wives and he left over from each kind of animal, insect, creature or what have you that existed in the world two, two pairs from the, from the ones that were impure, seven from the ones that were pure. They went into a teva, they went into an Noah's ark. Yeah. A lot of pictures been painted of what Noah's Ark looked like, some correct, some very wrong. And he lived there for more or less almost a year's time until the waters settled down. Noah came out and they rehabilitated the world. That's Parshish Noah. <coughs> I'd like to first of all go back to something in Parshish Bracious to try to explain that the entire episode of the flood is a modern-day event. Now, I don't mean the rainstorms in California over the last week, but what I mean is the, there are some particular lessons from the flood that are so startling, stare you in the face to be so pertinent to this particular day that that is really the purpose of tonight's class. I mean, it seems to be like a very nice story, a flood and people get saved and the world starts over again and, and that's it. Like, what does it have to do with us? Uh, the, what we're going to attempt to tonight is trying to understand how it's relevant to us. But the first thing that's interesting and important to make mention of is a certain attitude that we should have when we're discussing the flood. At the end of Parshish Bracious, at the end of the portion that we just read this past Shabbos, there's a passage, there's a passage that says, Vayisatsev el libo. God was sad. God was sad. Vayisatsev el libo, he was sad. 
And technically speaking, the word Vayisatev Alibay means that he regretted creating the world. Now, this raises a tremendous philosophical problem because regret connotates thinking one way and then seeing things don't work out one way, changing your mind and doing it another way. That's what regret usually is. You go one way and you see it's not working, so you backtrack or you change and you go another way. This is a very difficult thing to say when we're talking about God. Because when we talk about God, we're talking about somebody that knows past, present, and future. If you know past, present, and future, the word to change your mind doesn't really fit in. Every person who regretted something in his past, yeah, if he would have known that it was going to happen, it would never happen. Because he would know that it's happening and he wouldn't do it. So regret only comes because you don't know what's coming up. But you can't say that God doesn't know what's coming up. So he did know what's coming up. So what does Vayisatsev Alibay mean? So it's very clear that the word Vayisatsev Alibay does not mean that God regretted or changed his mind in creating the world. And Rashi explains to us exactly what it does mean. I'm not going to read the Rashi outside, but Rashi says a story, a very interesting story. Rashi's story is that there was once an Apikairis, there was once a heretic that approached Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha. He approached Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha and he asked Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha, do you believe that God sees everything in the future? So Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha said, definitely, of course. So the heretic asked Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha, if that is the case, so how is it? All right? How is it that that here it says that God regretted the world that he created right before the flood. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha gave an answer. Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha's answer was, Hey fellow, did you ever have a kid in your life? Sure. When your kid was born, did you make a party? A bris of course, you didn't make. But did you make a party? Sure I did. How many people did you invite? I invited everybody. Did you have a good time? Yeah. Was it a happy occasion? Yeah. I have a question to ask you, Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha said. You know that sooner or later he's going to die. I mean, that's a fact of life. So what did you bother for? So the answer that the heretic says, what do you mean? For the time that it existed, it's very happy. And in the time of joy and happiness, let's absorb everything that we can in the time that there's happiness and joy. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha said, well, it's the same thing when we're talking about God. When it says Ayyasatsev Alibay, it doesn't mean that he regretted what happened. He was disappointed, would be the better way of saying that he couldn't continue giving in the joyous way that he wanted to give. In other words, when God created the world, he created the world with the purpose of giving. He wanted to give. And the opportunity to give was a tremendous happiness on God's part. Did God know that eventually the world would come to a point where we'd have to start all over again? Yes. But for as long as God was able to give, like the parents that throw a party for a child that they know is not going to live a thousand years, not going to live eternally, nevertheless, it's a happy occasion for the time that it exists. For as long as God can give, it's the happiest occasion in the world. And when the decision comes that it can't go on, it's the saddest occasion on God's part. This goes in line with what the Medrash says, 
that seven days before the flood came, God sat in Avelis. He sat in mourning over the world that he would have to destroy. So the first thing that is important to understand when we approach this entire topic of the flood is to understand that we're not talking about a God that is steaming mad with pillars of smoke popping out of his ears and fire out of his nostrils and he's saying, I'm going to get even with those bums. That's not the picture that should be painted of pre-flood days in God's mind. Pre-flood days in God's mind was a period of the saddest period of time that we can imagine as a figure of speech in God's world. God sat in mourning over the world that he had to destroy. And that's an important, that's an important thing to mention. In fact, the morale says that if you become familiar with language of the Talmud all around, we, there are references to God crying. Right. Now, God doesn't have any physical form or features to say that he has eyes or eye ducts or tear ducts or anything like that. So what does this mean that God is crying? So obviously it's an expression that's used for us. But the morale says the, the end of it. The morale says what is the end of crying? The end of crying is the holding back of blessing. That is the end of the equation. Crying on God's part is synonymous with having to hold back blessing. That's the same, it's the same thing. One equals the other. Two plus two equals four. God's crying equals having to hold back the blessing that he wants to give to, to mankind. That's the equation. And that is the way that we have to begin to understand what the whole episode of the flood is all about. <coughs> It's worthwhile also to mention, just before we get started, that the people of the world knew that the flood was coming for 120 years. That's even better than the earthquake in Los Angeles, the big earthquake that's supposed to come. 120 years, Noah built the Teva, he built the ark. He put, brought the lumber, and cut the lumber, brought the nails, brought the paint, brought the architect, and he schlepped it out. He drew it out over 120 years. Why? So that when all the traffic would go by and see this guy in the, in the lumber yard knocking together this ark, hey, they, would, they would call out to him, hey, what's the matter? What are you busy doing? And Noah, Noah's answer was, I am building an ark because God is going to destroy the world. And for 120 years, this is the word that went. So they had 120 years of warning they didn't pay attention to it. They made fun of him. They jested him. You know, he became an object of fun. You can imagine, you know, when they put up these buildings in Los Angeles, you know, so for the year or two years that they're putting up the buildings, it's such a nuisance to traffic and everything. But you know, sooner or later it's going to be over. The building's going to be up. They'll clean, they'll clean the street and you can go again. No, he was in the way for 120 years with one message not a joint effort by the city, state, and federal government to make a beautiful park, but that this is an effort on my part to save myself when God will destroy the world. And for 120 years, this was the project, and nobody paid attention. That's also worthwhile to keep in mind as we proceed on. Obviously, this needs a reason why nobody paid attention in 120 years' time. <coughs> 
Now, we are told that at the time that God brought the flood, God made a statement, also at the end of Parashas Precious. I am not at all going to fight for the benefit of the spirit of man. I am giving it a translation that's not Sonsino. It's based upon a number of commentaries. I am not going to stand in defense of the spirit of man. Why? Because man is nothing more than flesh. In other words, man has two parts to him, soul and body, physical and spiritual. And if he would value his spiritual, I would be able to come to his defense for his spiritual values if he values them himself. But Bishagam Hubasa, he's nothing more than flesh. He doesn't identify with anything else except his flesh. And since he doesn't identify with anything else except his flesh, I'm not going to stand in defense of his soul. He has to stand in his own defense first. And when he values it himself, then I'll come into the picture. That's a very big statement. That's the kind of statement that comes right before total destruction. When God says that I am not going to stand in the defense of neshama, that means God has come to his wit's end. But there is something that's very important to know. Even when we say that God has had it, okay, I'm not going to come to the man's defense anymore. So what is God ushering in? He is ushering in a time of punishment. That's what he's ushering in. Now, in terms of the flood, we are all acquainted to think that all the flood was, was a washout. Okay? A complete wipeout. There were eight people that were worthy to live on. The rest of the world wasn't worthy to live on. And what God did was he made a total destruction of the entire world. And we are acquainted to think that this is a punishment that doesn't really have a building element to it. In other words, if a person goes on living and goes on having his things, just there's certain punishments that come into his life. So we say those punishments come into his life to try to modify his behavior and to correct his behavior. But if we have the phenomena unfolding in this parasha where God doesn't do that kind of thing, but all he does is he makes a complete wipeout, so we think that this has nothing whatsoever to do with the typical way that God punishes. This is not true. The flood, as great a destruction as it was, was tailored to be able to create a world afterwards that would be able to exist. And this is what we're going to try to develop this evening. In other words, first of all, we have to know that the punishment came when there was no other way out on God's part to set things straight. Number two, when God did bring the punishment, the punishment was still within the structure of tikkun, of fixing and rectifying things. So you'll say to me, come on, this is stretching it just a bit too far. You destroy a whole world and you say it's tikkun. How is that tikkun? You're destroying the world. You want to say you're going to make a new world? Fine, you're making a new world. But this punishment doesn't have anything to do with tikkun. It's just a complete destruction. What does it have to do with tikkun? 
Then we also have something very eerie at the end of the parsha, which always bothered me. And when I go away tonight, it will still bother me. But I just want to express it, and maybe something will come as the evening goes on. One way or the other, if we understand that it's tikkun, that it's to rectify something, or that it was a wipeout and total destruction or not, but we do hope to believe that God was right and just in doing what he did. At the end of the whole episode, God comes to Noah after Noah brought a sacrifice and says, I'm not going to do it again. And I promise you that I won't do it again. And I'm going to make a rainbow as a symbol that I'll never do it again. And when you see the rainbow, that means that I really should do it again, but because of my promise, I'm not going to do it again. Seeing a rainbow is uh, not a good not a good thing because the rainbow means to say that God is only being held back by a promise that he made not to destroy the world again. That's what a rainbow is. So as beautiful as it might be, it is not, is not considered a good sign in a generation that it comes. In fact, the Talmud says that in the generation of certain very righteous people, a rainbow never came in their lifetime. And this was indicative of the fact that they atoned for the sins of their generation. So the rainbow never came in their time. But let's make up our mind. If a flood is a just thing, and it's a punishment with a direction towards modification, it was with right that God did it. Whatever the right was, whatever the justice is, whatever the plan is. So then why does God say, I did it once, but I promise I won't do it again? I mean, God has to excuse himself God has to come and say, I'm not going to do it again. If it's right to do it again, he'll do it again. And if it's not right, he won't do it. What is he binding himself with a shvua? Like, what is this whole thing with a rainbow and binding himself? If it's right to do, he should do it. And if it's not right to do, he shouldn't do it. I mean, what's the, he did it once, I'm, I won't do it again. You know, like the kid takes a cookie from a cookie jar and his mother yells and he says, I won't do it again. I mean, God knew what he was doing. And whatever led up to a flood and a destruction once, how come afterwards God said, no, no more after that? As if to say, even though it should be done, it won't be done. I mean, wh- I mean I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not petitioning for another flood. Don't get me wrong. Okay? But, let, but what's, the, what's the logic? What's the logic behind a commitment of that nature? What's, what's behind that? Okay, let's get into the guts of what's happening here. The best way of discussing this is to first understand exactly what the sin was. What were the sins that brought about the destruction? What were the sins? Well, like most things, we got ourselves a problem because there seems to be a contradiction. In one place it says that the problem was that they worshipped idols. They began worshipping idols and they started living immoral lives. Immoral lives, all kinds of weird behaviors, strange behaviors, in specific, specifically in sexual areas. So, sex was a problem, idol worship was a problem, and God said, because of these two things, I am going to have to wipe out the world. The world. Why the world? So the Pasuk says, because not the immorality of the times was not only within the human being, 
and within mankind as a human race? No. It had filtered into every living thing. Animals made it out of their kinds. You put one kind of seed in the ground and another seed came out of the ground. Everything started to go wacky. Literally wacky. Everything was hishkastake. Everything had perverted ways. Everything. The birds didn't know who they were married to, who to mate with, and the cows and the ox and the camels and everything was topsy-turvy. This is what happened during the flood. And God said, listen, a world like this can't exist. Hishkas kolbasa yastarkei ala aretz. Everything has perverted its way. It's kates kolbasa balafanai. All living things, their end has come. The question that's always asked, the kind of question that the Civil Liberties Union would ask, so the question that's asked is, if man sinned, he sinned in his free choice and he should be punished. But what do you want from all the animals? The animals didn't have free choice. Whatever they did, they just did out of nature. If the nature in that particular time lent itself to this kind of perverted behavior, it wasn't as if they, you know, decided to become gay or something or went to some, some gay convention and that's why you're punishing them or something like that. It just happened. So what do you want from them? So, kill out man, leave over Noah, start a world over from Noah, but what do you want from the rest of mankind? That's, that's a question that's asked. Other than that, another problem is that there is a Rashi that says, and it's not a Rashi, it's a Pasuk, it's a, one of the passages in the Chumash, that says that that the land was full of plundering, of stealing. So Rashi comes along and Rashi says, If you want to know what was the straw that broke the camel's back, that God said, that's it, I've had it and I'm going to bring a flood, it was Gezel. Kaboom. Stealing. Now, there are a number of problems with this. First of all, as bad as stealing is, it is not considered from the cardinal sins. Idol worship, immorality, murder, these are considered like cardinal sins. Gezel is pretty bad, don't get me wrong. But to assume that the world was wiped out because people were pickpockets, seems to be an over-exaggeration of a justice system. That's one problem. The other problem is the contradiction. In one place it says that God brought the destruction because of immorality and idol worship. And in the other place it says that God brought the destruction because of gazel, because of stealing. Well, let's make up our minds. Which one was it? So the Lev Elio says like this, Delay Velio says, Delay Velio, just let me ch tell you who he is. His name is Revelio Lapian. Revelio Lapian. It's a very great Musser figure, ethical figure, that didn't live so long ago. He says like this, and he bases it on Maimonides' eight chapters, famous Maimonides' eight chapters. He says, the same way that we find in the world that there are physical ailments with physical symptoms and physical rules, so too in the spiritual world. In other words, 
the same way that we understand the disease as bacteria and the bacteria can grow and it can spread so in a spiritual sense also it's the same thing it's only an example the physical only serves to us as an example there are certain spiritual ailments that are just like bacteria they grow under certain very good conditions warm moist conditions and they become bigger and bigger and they spread and if you don't take medicine you can get into a lot of trouble and there are many comparisons the immune system in the human being there's a spiritually um, um, spiritual immune system for a person as well there's a way you can fight back against the physical disease there's a way that you have inbred powers to fight against spiritual disease immune systems and if you're familiar with Maimonides Maimonides goes chapters and he brings all the examples of how exact whatever is true in the physical world is true in the spiritual world in this particular vein one of the things Maimonides doesn't talk about it but the Valio talks about it is the concept of contagious contagious what is contagious today we know a little bit what contagious means the bacteria goes into the ear or it's transmitted through the saliva of a person or different things whoever is a doctor in the in the in the group please forgive me for sounding like such a utter fool but there are different ways that it's communicated through ear through different ways that it's communicated so you could have a perfectly healthy person but if he's in an environment that has this stuff floating around in it and he makes contact with it he's gonna get it you can catch a cold from somebody else the same way that you can catch a cold from somebody else spiritually there's also something like that when a person does different things he creates an atmosphere around him with all kinds of bugs flying around in that atmosphere and people that are around him can catch it they can catch it a person can say to himself well I am myself I'm healthy I can come into contact with the biggest bum in the world and it's not going to bother me ask him if he wants to come into contact with a guy that has measles or a bad cold and he'll say no so you'll ask him why so he says because I would I want to catch it spiritually there's also such a concept atmosphere is created and you can catch it Leveliyo brings down that they were tzaddikim, they were holy people, that before they moved into a new house, they made sure that if Jews lived in the house before, that they weren't people that didn't observe the Shabbos, to make sure that they weren't people that didn't observe the Shabbos. Because they felt that they were influenced in some way by the Chilul Shabbos, by the non-observance of Shabbos that had occurred in the walls of that house before and this is brought down he brings it down from various people that they made sure that those houses were houses that Shabbos was always kept in that's the kind of a con- idea just like in a room after a sick patient leaves the room for whatever reason he goes to intensive care or he leaves so the nurse comes in changes the linen washes the night table washes the floor cleans everything up you can take everything home because the next person does shouldn't have any contact with whatever you had the same thing is spiritually that's an example of it so the truth of the matter is 
The truth of the matter is that the animals, it wasn't their fault, and it wasn't the bird's fault, and it wasn't the fly's fault, and it wasn't the frog's fault. It was nobody's fault. It was man's fault. But the fact of the thing was, was that they were all caught in a sick room, and they all became sick. So, this is not a question of blame here. It's not a question of who did it and who started it. But now we're dealing with an entire society, with an entire world that's become sick, beyond cure. So it's not a question of whose fault it is, the Leo says. It's just a disease that has unfortunately run rampant. And put the blame wherever you like. It doesn't make a difference. But now we're dealing with people that are incurably sick with these diseases, with these kinds of diseases. In fact, and this is something that's a very scary kind of thing, Rashi says that when idol worship and immorality are rampant in an area and God brings punishment because of it, it's brought down that when God punishes, He punishes both the good and the bad. It's possible that people that are basically clean of those things can also suffer punishment in that situation. Rashi says, if you look up the Rashi sometime over the next week, Rashi says, Andrulius Bala Ailam, which means epidemics come to the world, Vahiregis Taivin Varayim, and it hurts both good and bad people. And the concept behind that is also the same concept the Leveleo says that even though these people are good, but living in that environment with such intense, perverse kind of, kind of behavior going on is invariably going to have to affect every single person, good or bad. We had in our history a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, Yochanan Kohen Gadol, a high priest. Eighty years he was a high priest considered the holiest person. He was the only fellow that was able to go into the Holy of Holies, and after 80 years, he became a tztuki. A tztuki is a person that only believes in the written law and not in the oral law. And for all intents and purposes, he's considered a heretic. A tztuki. Rabbi Yechenin. Yechenin Kayin Gadol. And the Levi Eliyahu says the same thing. As holy as he was, but the environment around him was so intense at that particular point in his lifetime on this particular kick of being a tztuki that he got caught up in it. Nobody is really protected in such an intense environment that he won't be influenced. Obviously, so what is a person supposed to do about it? Okay, this we'll talk about. But the first thing that we've gone through is that there are certain sins, sexual immorality, idol worship in this particular case, that had become so intensified in this particular situation that it crept out of the spheres of just human beings. It went to animals and birds and everything else. And if you want a modern-day example of this, just go to San Francisco. There are studies that have been written all about different things that are going on in San Francisco with bird life in San Francisco and it's just another carbon copy of pre-flood days the same kind of thing they've traced in in the areas around the bay all kinds of things in other 
not by, in, by human beings, intellectuals, by other people, by other, by birds and other animals, they've already detected this kind of a thing. And this is, this is just the natural result of everything that goes on in that place. But what do we do? What do we do about the contradiction of the reason for the flood? So this seems to be pretty strong. Idol worship, sexual immorality, so strong that it affected everything from top to bottom. God had to destroy it. Fine, that seems to be enough. Comes along Rashi, and Rashi says, no. You know why God destroyed the world? Because people were pickpockets. Alagazel, because they used to steal money. So how do we reconcile the difference? So the Avni Nezer says, <coughs> and he brings many proofs for this, which we're not going to go into tonight. The Avni Nezer says that when we talk about Gezel, Gezel can be on many different levels. Gezel can be standing at a bus stop and trying to pickpocket somebody. But there are deeper, there are deeper concepts in Gezel. A deeper concept of Gezel is when a person doesn't recognize what God has given him and what God has given the next person. When he doesn't recognize that there are boundaries. When a person begins to think that everything that was put into this world was definitely put into this world for three people, me, myself, and I. That's also Gezel. The Avni Nezer says that the society that was building up from the time of Adam till Noah, those ten generations, was a me generation. The 70s, I think, was called, were called a me generation. It was a me generation. Everything is what's for me. What will I have out of it? What can I get from it? A generation of chatufin of grabbing, being a grabber, being a taker, grabbing, getting everything in for yourself. Another way of making a buck, another way of making a fast deal, another way of getting something else. Chap, chap. In Yiddish, there's no better word than chap. Chatufen. It doesn't mean just a petty pickpocketer. It means the attitude that I am the center of the universe and everything revolves around me. And everything sooner or later has to come into the center. That kind of idea. Where everything that a person does is with that consideration. That's Gezel. Now, why is that Gezel? First of all, it's Gezel because there are certain things that belong to you and certain things don't belong to you. And when you try to make everything belong to you, it's Gezel. <laughs> it's just stealing. You don't have to get too philosophical about that. It's just stealing. If you think that everything that you want belongs to you or has to belong to you, sooner or later it's gazel. So that's very simple. But in a deeper way, the gazel that really comes from it is that when we say that God gave you something and God gave the other fellow something, the question that's behind that is another one. Why did I get this and why did he get that? When God put me on the world and put him on the world, he put him on the world for one purpose and he put me on the world for another purpose. And he gave each of us what we need to accomplish our purposes. 
when I go ahead and I say that everything that everybody else has belongs to me, what we're really doing is we're not recognizing purpose. In other words, God made a decision. You're going to have $20,000. You can stand on your head. $20,000 and no more. The other guy, for some reason, is going to have $50,000. Yeah? And you are determined that the $50,000 that he has, I am going to have to get his clients, his business. I'm going to have the 50, and I'll be good enough to let him have the 20. That's the idea. Now, the question that comes up that, that's behind that is, why did God want him to have the 50 and me the 20? What has to be said and what has to be learned and understood is that whatever I get, I get for what I have to do. Whatever he gets, he gets for what he has to do. Who decides? The one that put us on the world, the one that gave us our purposes and our potentials. Now, if I decide I need the 50, I'm not saying that I want to have the responsibilities of him. I want to have his benefits, not his responsibilities and purposes. The guy that steals the other guy's $50,000 is not interested in assuming his spiritual responsibilities with $50,000. He's just interested in the cold cash. That's all he wants. He doesn't want anything else. So what is he saying? That I can live in this world, have money, have all the blessings of this world, and not use them for what they were sent down for. Everybody gets something that he's supposed to use for a purpose. If I want his thing, and I'm not willing to assume the purpose that's behind the thing, which is usually the case, so that means that I want this world and everything that's in it without the purpose that's behind it. That's gezo. That's like eating something without making a bracha. It's taking from the world and not using it for what it was given to you for. I give you $10 and I tell you, go to the store with this $10 and buy me a loaf of bread. Someday it might cost that. Yeah, and buy me a loaf of bread. You go and you buy soda pop with it and you never show up again. That's gazelle. That's gazelle. In other words, you're taking something that was put into the world and you use it for something else. Gazelle. So the Avninezer says the following thing. There's no question that the particular sin that they were punished for was for idol worship and for sexual immorality. No question about it. But what was the root of the sin? What was the driving force that led these generations that were so close to the beginning of creation so far away from God? There was so much blessing in the world. There was so much good in the world. They got onto the wrong train. They started to think that everything was created for them and everything is just hop as much as you can, take in as much as you can for yourself, and they became grabbers with both hands and both feet. And when you become a grabber and you want this and you want that and you think the whole world is centered around yourself, you are very close to sin. Very close. Because you think that everything is to go into yourself and everything is for me. And there's no purpose that's related to the things that I have and I use. A person is very close to sin. So the particular sin, if you want to go to the referee and find out what you did wrong, how did you foul out, you fouled out on these two sins. But what, the, what is the characteristic? What is the driving force within man that brought him to that? The chatufen, being a chopper. Chopping, 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 chopping. That's a world that can't go on. That's a world that can't go on. When God created the world, there is one basic premise by which the world has to live. People have to learn to give. 
If the whole world is a world of choppers, the world will destroy itself. It won't take too long and the world would have been wiped out on its own. A world where everybody lives self-centered and a chaper, the world has no basis to exist. The world destroys itself. The world can only live with people knowing that they have to give to each other. It's a very simple and logical thing. Olam chesed jibane. The world is built on chesed, on being able to give. It is a very spiritual quality as well. Everything wanting to chap, to get for yourself, that's a very, that's a very, very base kind of uh, way of living. Learning to give, learning to be concerned with another person, and learning to do things for another person, and see another person, and do for another person, that's a spiritual thing. A person comes very close to being like a god. The same way that God gave into the world, the person becomes like God. And when we live in this world, we try to emulate God. God is a giver. He's not a taker. He's a giver. And man also has to become a giver. And the dramatic thing underneath that saw the destruction of the world was that everybody was becoming chappers. A world like that can't exist. A world of chappers just can't exist. <coughs> now, on this basis, we will understand very well what the Teva was all about. The ark. Noah went into an ark, and he was an ark. Now everything's going to fit into place. Geschmiert, and we're finished in ten minutes. All right? Now we'll know everything that's going on. With this understanding, we'll under see the whole thing. Noah went into an ark. God decides he has to destroy the world. Noah, for some reason, with his three children and their wives, merits to live on. They go into an ark. What's the ark? Three floors made out of wood after everything is said and done. It wasn't a nuclear submarine. Yeah, it was made out of wood. The bottom was the garbage heap. The second level was the zoo. The third level was for the human beings. Yeah, and for one year, how did Noah live? Noah lived, most probably, the Gemara says he didn't sleep for one year. He didn't taste sleep. Why? Because at 7 o'clock he had to feed the lion. At 7.03 he had to feed the zebra. At 7.05 he had to feed the hippopotamus. At 7.07 he had to feed the parakeet. At 7.10 he had to feed... Some. And this went on 24 hours around the clock for a whole year. In fact, the Talmud says that one day he missed giving the Ari. Poor guy. He forgot to give the Ari on time. He came a little bit late. And when he left the Teva after the year, he was limping. Because the Ari got angry took a swipe at him. So for one year he became a zookeeper with no union under tremendous pressure. Tremendous pressure. Worse than Continental Airlines. Terrible. Yeah. For one year. Who needed it? Who needed that? God could have wiped out the world in an instant, put them on some mountain someplace and protected them from the destruction. Two minutes and finished. He had to become a zookeeper for a year? And what a zookeeper? Who needed it? Now, let's continue on. The table was made out of wood. It went into water. It went into powerful waters. Waters that were boiling. Over 210. How did the table stay together? It, the fiercest storms were going on during those 40 days. It wasn't one of these light rain, rainfalls like when the rainy season comes to California and just drips all day. It was a storm of the highest intensity. The water bubbled, and the tape existed. 
So what does the Gemara say? The Gemara does this a very good turn. The Gemara says it was a mess. It was a miracle. Technically speaking, the table should have been bro- broken to smithereens on the first night of the flood. And God kept it for a year with miracles. Who needs miracles? The whole world in one minute. God has ways of doing if he wants to. And put Noah and his children somewhere in a shelter for a couple of minutes and finished. What's the big deal? What does he have to go through that for? The answer is that God was building a new world. The answer is that the sickness of the earlier world was that it was a world of chaperai. And what God wanted was, God always intended that the world should continue. So what God wanted was that the roots of the new world should be a world that will be built totally on giving. That's what he wanted. He wanted a world that would be totally based on giving. So he put these people, Noah and his children and, his w- and their wives, into the Teva, and they went on a crash course for a year, learning only to be givers, only to give. That was the intention. And when we say that the Teva, that the Ark existed in miracles, you know what the component of the miracle was? The Chesed. The charity that was going on in that teva is what kept that teva going in the water. It was the chesed that was going on. Kiyom ha'olam. The, the benefit of working for mankind to keep mankind alive and going. That's what kept that teva going. That was the miracle. But what Noah went through in that particular period of time was a training to learn only to give. Only to give. There's another interesting thing. The Gemara says that for the year that Noah was in the Teva and his family was in the Teva, marital, marital relations were not permitted. In fact, there was one member in the party that did not keep to this and he was severely cursed for it afterwards. What's the idea of this? So some people say, well, when the world is in a state of pain, marital relations are not permitted. There's a law like that, but it goes much deeper. Because the world that Noah lived in was a world that even the most intimate relationships between people became nothing more than exploitation of one, one of the other. So for that year's time, in that sensitive period of learning only to give, God prohibited marital relations until they learned to give. So that afterwards when they leave the Teva, even the most intimate of relationships are not exploitation, but a way of giving to each other. Another example of the same thing. Now, it's important also to make mention of the fact that it seems that Noah really got a real, real rotten deal. Just because God had to build a new world, he had to go through this for a whole year. It seems that really, like he bore the brunt of, you know, of, of building a whole world and all the chesed that had to be done in the world, he had to do. It seems pretty rough. The truth of the matter is that on a personal level, Noah also deserved what happened in the flood. We are told in different ways that Noah is held responsible for not reprimanding and not trying to make the, his generation return. And we have contradictions. One, one, one sage says that he did 
and for 120 years he went around preaching return. And another place it says that he didn't do. And back and forth. The answer is that he did, but he didn't do enough. He could have opened up his mouth more. He could have pushed more. He could have pressed more. He did, but he didn't do enough. And he's held responsible for it. That is also a lack of chesed. In other words, you could have a problem of chesed where people grab from somebody else. That's one example. One example is, I got mine, you got yours. What's yours is mine. That's one problem. You're a chopper. There's another problem. The things that I have, physically or spiritually, if I only share them with myself and I don't give them to other people, that's also a problem. If Noah didn't do as much as he could, that means he had certain spiritual potentials and he did not share them. That means to a certain degree he was given certain things and he didn't use them. He's also a goslin. He got potentials to return a whole generation and he didn't use them. He's also a goslin. So it's not as if he got caught in the bind. He got caught in between. He was a righteous guy and God wanted to create a new world so he got stuck with the raw end of the deal and he had to become a big Baal Chesed and he had to become a zookeeper for a year. He had himself what he had himself what to learn and what, the, and what he deserved. In fact, Noah himself said, Noah himself said, I'm as responsible for what's happening outside as, as, as any of them. And the truth of the matter is that I don't know why I should be destroyed, why I shouldn't be destroyed and they should be destroyed. God found favor. I found favor in God's eyes. So everybody asks, well, what kind of statement is that, Noah? Noah, it says he's a tzaddik and ishtam and everything else. The answer is, no matter who you are, you can be the biggest tzaddik in the world. But no matter how much you have, you have to learn how to give it. And if you don't give it, you're the same gosling like somebody else. You can be a big holy person, never think of pickpocketing, never think of stealing, never think of doing anything wrong to somebody else. But if you have something that can help somebody else and you hold it in for yourself, and you don't actively pursue giving it to others, you're the same gosling. And that's what Noah felt. I found favor. For some reason, I found favor. <coughs> it says, let's just give another couple of examples of this and we'll wrap this up. It says, who do we know in Chumash is the biggest Baal Chesed in the world? In Chumash. Avram, right? Avram. What did Avram do? He built a house with four doors. Yeah? He didn't build one door with a peephole and you can look through only one way. No, there was four doors. It was open on all four sides. When somebody came to knock at the door, you know, who's there? What are you here for? I gave already. Goodbye. Leave me alone. I don't have any food in the refrigerator. No. Had four doors open on all sides. Big Baal Chesed. Where did Avram learn his Chesed from? Where did he get it from? So the Medrash tells us a story that Avram met Malki Tzedek. Malki Tzedek is shame. Malki Tzedek is shame, which was one of Noah's children. And Avram asked Malki Tzedek, how were you worthy of going out of the Teva alive? Abraham asked Malki Tzedek, who was Noah's son, how, did you, how were you worthy of going out of the Teva alive? So Malki Tzedek said, what do you mean? We did a tremendous amount of tzedakah. We did a tremendous amount of good in the Teva. We gave charity in the Teva. So Avram looked at him and said, come on, knock it off. You know, 
there are people coming to ask for Nadavas all times, but during the flood nobody knocked on your door. So no, and al looked back and said to him, what do you mean? We fed all the animals. We made sure that they had to eat. We made sure that the cages were clean. We made sure that they had what they needed. That's the stucca that we did. And if it wasn't for that stucca that we did, we would never have survived. So Avram heard this, and Avram said to himself, he said, those people were able to survive a year of danger because they did stucca with animals. So I, that I have the potential of doing stucca with, a human, be- with human beings, how can I stay away from it? If that, keep, if that kept Noah and his family alive through a year of danger, and that was with animals, so if a person has a way of doing it with a human being, so for sure he should do it with a human being. After he heard that story, he built his four-door house, and he became committed to chesed. Avram drew out of the story of the Mabel that from now on the necessary element to keep the world going is that the world has to become givers. Everything has to be giving. Physically, spiritually, whatever it is, you have to become a giver. There are a number of things that I'd like to talk about that are extremely practical applications to this concept of giving. Some of them are very sensitive issues. So bear with me. losing my papers the Sepharna tells us that when Noah started to build the Teva and started giving Musser, he started giving talks to the people that they should return otherwise the world would be destroyed that is when he was Zohar Lebanim that is when he became worthy to have children this is what the Sepharna says in other words when Noah became a giver and he started to give out to other people to the degree that he did we learned that he didn't give it in the fullest way but to the degree that he did so the Sferna says Zohar Lebanim that's when he started that's when he was Zohar to children and he had children right before the flood what is that Sferna saying? what that Sferna is saying is and this is a little bit an interpretation that I want to say one of the difficulties in becoming a giver is that we think that when we give we're taking away from ourselves that's what we think in other words if you only make it in in strictly dollars and cents forms if I have ten thousand dollars in the bank and I give one thousand dollars away like I'm required to because of nicer I give away a, a tenth of my earnings to nicer So a person thinks to himself, now I'm a person that owns $9,000, not $10,000. I have the clout of nine, not the clout of ten. I said he becomes mitzumtzum, that he's becoming 
He's restricting his capabilities, his potentials, his clout. Unfortunately, this is true in many different areas. This can be in financial areas. This can be in terms of time. This can be in terms of imparting wisdom to another person. A person can think to himself, I'm going to spend time bothering myself with other people. Yeah, And that time I can be busy learning more and more for myself and gaining deeper and deeper insights for myself. Why should I bother with another person? A person, so what do you say? But you know, it's a mitzvah of chesed. It's not enough to think, oh, there's a mitzvah of doing chesed I have to give, even though I'm losing from it. The Sephardim is teaching us that it's not true. Chesed, giving, giving doesn't make a person smaller. It makes a person bigger. And the nature of giving is that when a person starts giving, so what happens is God looks at the person and says, this guy is giving what he's getting. In other words, he's becoming a good shliach. He's becoming a good messenger. What I give him, he uses what it's, for, what it's supposed to be used for. So he becomes a greater vessel of giving. So God says, if what you get, you give. So then I'm going to give you more and more so that you should be able to give more and more. So what happens is that when a person begins to give, he himself becomes a source he becomes a source that God says, I can use that source because what I'm going to put here, I know that it's going to get to all the different areas that it's supposed to get through this person. So by, by God seeing in Noah that Noah was giving of himself, God said he can have children too. He can have children too. A person that's ready to give can have children too. And when he saw that he was ready to give, he can have children. Now, this is a bit of sensitive issue. Okay, but it should be talked about. It's at least Parshas Noach. It should be talked about Parshas Noach. One of the problems in pre, pre-flood days was family planning. This was very clearly, and it doesn't say family planning in the Medrash. They had other terms for it in those terms. They called a spade a spade. But this was one of the problems. One of the problems was that people could not see themselves living for the sake of raising a family. A marriage partner was a social friend. Each one contributed to the other person. And that was it. It was another way of getting what you had to have. And nothing more than that. There was no concern in building a family. There was no concern in building the world. There was, certainly was no concern in contributing any great meaning to the world. None of that. A similar situation today is we won't have children now because we can't afford it. When we'll afford it, we'll have it. Right now, we can't afford it. We have $30,000 between the two of us. We need $15,000 to live, another $7,000 for vacations and for entertainment. We can't afford it. The idea is the idea is that deep, deep down, the greatest, let me put it this way, the greatest power that a person has is, and the greatest spirit and holiness that a person gets is when he's big enough to realize that when he gives, he becomes bigger. That's the greatest, that's the greatest thing that God is a creator, man can be a creator. Bringing life into this world Rearing children, 
people that will carry forth ideas and goals and purposes and help build themselves and the world around them. This is the greatest way that we can give. And it's the greatest holiness that a person has. He becomes as close to being godly as God himself. All the different attitudes, honestly speaking, all the different attitudes, while the world needs needs population control and planning and all of this, is not because we're going to run out of food, and it's not because there's not enough living space, and it's not because there's not enough parking spaces, and it's not because there's not enough doctors. This is all the official excuses. Deep, deep down, the difficulty with rearing families and accepting that responsibility comes because we're really not ready to give. We're not ready to give. And if a person would only realize that from giving he doesn't become smaller, he becomes bigger, it would be easier. When Noah opened up his mouth and he gave of himself, he became worthy to have children. He became worthy to have children. There's another important point here. We mentioned before that in a society that's very self-centered and everything is chap-chap, that was the root of all their sins. We mentioned that in a situation of tremendous perversion, it affects everybody. That means that it affects you and me too. And the question that comes up is, where's the ark? Where's Noah's Teva today? Noah had a Teva, and he protected himself from the destruction that the Chaparai created in the world. But how do we in our society today protect ourselves from all of that? The only way to protect ourselves from all the perversion that's around us is to try to combat the source from where it comes. The source from where it comes is Chaparai. We are persons that...